Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to read about 24 verses of this chapter together. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and came unto him, and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom as was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was coming to him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was to come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Mic drop, right? Thus saith the Lord, God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee the master's house and the master's wives unto thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if it had been too little, I would have moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore, hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall not depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them to thy neighbor. And he shall lie with the wives in the sight of the sun, for thou didst this thing in secret. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Notice verse 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit because of this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed into his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. And David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of the house arose and went to him and raised him up from the earth, and he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, the child was yet alive. We had spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto your voice. How will he then vex himself if you tell him that the child is dead? Well, when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house when he required... They set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive, and when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread? 
And he said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore, should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. I have a sermon this morning that I'd like to entitle, Can God Really Forgive Me? Can God Really Forgive Me? We know that in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22, David is described this way. He's described as a man after God's own heart. If you look at David's life from the beginning to the end, he started off as a shepherd. He killed the bear. He killed the lion. He was full of self-sacrifice. He loved the flock because he respected his father and respected his God. He was anointed a king when he was just a lad. And where did he go? He went right back out into the field. He could have said, I'm the king. <laughs> I'm anointed the king. But he had such respect and such humility. He went back into the field to do his duty. And he was the best shepherd there ever was. He was the best musician they needed a musician in the palace. I'm sure you know why. And uh, he could have said, I am the king. I'm not going to be a lowly servant, a musician. But he went, and he was the best musician there ever was. In fact, he had that reputation. Somebody just came forward in the palace and said, I know a man. He's a country boy. Probably plays the banjo. <laughs> He's out in the country. He's a great musician, and he will soothe the king's soul. So he's now in the palace. Once he's in the palace, he now becomes a warrior. He's the best warrior you've ever seen. You know, they sing songs about him. Saul slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Every battle he ever won, he always gave credit to the Lord. We read about David's mighty men that he probably trained himself. In fact, I have to confess, when I'm in uh, was in boring meetings, I usually turned in my Bible and read about David's mighty men. You might have done the same. You look around David's life. You not only see his accomplishments, he was the best at whatever he undertook. He did the best he could, but he was a kind and loving man. He spared Saul's life. He showed mercy to Mephibosheth. He wept when Saul and Jonathan died. Saul, his mortal enemy, whom he had to dodge spears being thrown at him and sought his life. And, you know, after he became king, one of the first acts he did was he sent for the Ark of the Covenant because it represented the presence of the Lord. And I believe that's one of the reasons he was called a man after God's own heart is because he sought and loved the presence of the Lord. And what that, that was the Ark of the Covenant, that what it symbolized, and that's what it was in reality because we see the Shekinah glory was there between the wings of the cherubims. And when Saul was king, he didn't lift a finger to get the Ark of the Covenant back. But David, that was one of his first acts because he loved the Lord. He forgave rebel after rebel. He was a man after God's own heart. And then you read 2 Samuel chapter 12, and you said, this does not compute. Really doesn't. How could David do this based on everything I know about him? This can't be him. Maybe chapter 12 was a mistake. The translators put that in there. I mean, what's the story? He skips a war he should have been at. 
He sees a woman bathing, commits fornication. She gets pregnant, and then he tries to cover it up. He calls Uriah back, the husband back from the war he should have been at. And he tries to get him to slay with his wife so he could cover it up. But Uriah has more honor than David does and stays outside. And so David then plots his death. He, he plots so that the troops around Uriah are withdrawn and he's surrounded and he is murdered by the hands of Ammon. But it was planned by David. He plots his death. And then he turns around and marries the widow and acts like the big hero. And then just goes about life like nothing ever happened. When you read chapter 12, do you ask that question? Say, how? This doesn't look like David. This just does not compute. But let me ask a further question. When you read chapter 12, do you put yourself in the place of David? And you read that, do you? You know, this historical narrative we have is not just there to inform us. When we read the Old Testament, we need to put ourselves in the place and become the perpetrator of the story because that's the real lesson. Well, I, Brother Chris, I just can't see myself in that situation. No, no, I would never do anything like David. Do you as a permanent Baptist believe in the doctrine of total depravity? Oh, yes, I believe in the doctrine of total depravity. I just believe it for the other fellow. Not me. I couldn't possibly do the things described in this chapter. It's just not me. And it just doesn't seem like David. There's an author named Christopher Brown, and he wrote a book entitled Ordinary Men. It's a book about a unit of average middle-aged German men. The Nazi army invaded Poland. After they left Poland, they needed a police force left behind, so they hired these average middle-aged men that had normal jobs, normal people, just like you, your neighbors and just like you, and they put uniforms on them, make them police, and at first, their activities were pretty so-called peaceful because their job was to round up the Jews in order to get them on trains and to send them to the concentration camp. They didn't have to do any of the dirty work. In just a few months, they were doing horrible acts of cruelty. And if you'll forgive me, just to illustrate the point in its reality, to the point that they were shooting running pregnant women in the back of the head as they're running. How could these men turn into monsters. Speaking of the Nazis, if you lived in Germany in the 1930s and 40s, statistics shows that there's a 90% chance that you would be a Nazi. Oh no, Brother Chris, I would never be a Nazi. I would be the one saving Anne Frank. <laughs> you know, see, a hero is very rare. But you, as the average German living in at that time, chances are you would have been a Nazi, whether you want to believe it or not. In 1935, there was this psychologist named Carl Jung, and he developed the concept of the dark side. He said in order for people to have proper personality development, they must realize that they had a shadow 
side, a dark side of their personality. They did not recognize that shadow in their personality. They wouldn't develop properly. You've all heard of the tulip doctrine, haven't you? You know the tulip doctrine. What's the T in tulip? Total depravity. We have it there at the beginning. And one of the reasons we start off with the T in tulip as total depravity is because we believe that if, unless you understand total depravity, you will not truly understand grace. Unless you totally understand total depravity, you will not understand the concept of unconditional election and forgiveness. In other words, we have to realize and understand there is a monster in all of us. And until we understand and realize there's a monster in all of us, we will have no moral force to do good in life. Why does the Bible tell us all about our heroes? Name any hero in the book besides Jesus Christ, and the Bible will tell you about their dark side. They don't do that in Islam. They don't do that in Buddhism, but they do that in the Bible. Why are they doing that? To show you that even our greatest heroes have monsters inside of them. If they do, you do. God wants us to know that to be truly good in this life, you have to understand that part of you which is malevolent. That's what Jordan Peterson said. I love it. If you look up the word, the definition of malevolence, it's not just general category of sin. Malevolence is the act or wish to do evil to others. Malevolence is what leads us to gossip. It's what leads us to slander. It's what leads us to lying. It's what leads us to tell something on a co-worker so that we get advantage at work. And it leads us to the acts that David did and that we do in our lives. How about a little scripture? about that. Romans chapter 8 verse 13 says, if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the spirit, they are the sons of God. We have a monster that James tells us we have three enemies. We have the flesh, the world, and Satan. And this flesh, my friends, that we have is a part of us. It's exceedingly sinful. That's what total depravity is. And it's a monster that we have to realize we have. And until we realize we have that monster, and until we realize that chapter 12 of 2 Samuel is us, we will not have the moral force to do good in this life, truly do good. See, this sermon is not for the perfect people. <laughs> no one is perfect here. But because of Jesus Christ, thank the Lord, every child of God can change. None of us are perfect. But no matter what your situation, no matter what you have done, any child of God can change. So this sermon this morning, this beautiful Saturday morning in North Carolina, is for the imperfect. This sermon this morning is for the liars and the cheaters, if you'll forgive me. The sermon is for them that have made mistakes. It's for them that have sinned, for those that have lain sleepless in their beds at night that can't go to sleep because of regret that fills their hearts. This sermon is for those that ask the question this morning, can I truly be forgiven? 
is there forgiveness for me? After everything that I've done, after everything that I've said, how can God love me? I know he forgives. I know he forgives others, but can he forgive me? I've seen him working in other people's lives, but is there forgiveness for me? Have you ever asked that question? And the answer to that question, thank the Lord, is yes, yes, yes. If there is forgiveness for King David, there is forgiveness for you and I. And maybe the Holy Spirit has brought us here together to ask this question to get the answer. If God can forgive David, if God can forgive other people in this room this morning, I believe he can forgive me. Chapter 12 is probably the worst day in David's life. Samuel has passed away. Now it's Nathan. Nathan's sort of like David's personal pastor. And he comes to him and he tells him, David, this is messed up what you've done. And convicts him. And in 13, verse 13, David replies, I have sinned. We all have relationships in our lives, and sometimes those relationships get strained. They sometimes get awkward. And because of different things that happen, we separate those relationships. You know, people start ghosting us, you know. They start dipping when we're, you know, we're say we're going to meet somewhere, they dip on you. They start talking behind your back. They might block you on social media. And there's a separation there between you and that other person. We've had working relationships where someone you used to be close with at work suddenly is taking credit for something you've said or done. Maybe they're criticizing you behind your back to the boss, and you have now separated from that person. That relationship is severed. We've had the same similar situation in families. You know, we have in-laws that become outlaws. And I'm sure you've never had that situation. <clears throat> you know, and there's bad blood starts between brothers and sisters. And then you have husbands and wives and they start fussing and fighting. And sometimes this friction happens in these relationships. And because of it, there begins a separation. God says he will never forsake us. He will always love us. God will never separate from us. Let's get this out of the way doctrinally this morning. God will never separate from us relationship-wise. You are his son and daughter, and that will never change. He thought about you and chose you before the foundation of the world, and his son, his only begotten son, went to the cross and thought of you and saw you while he was on the cross, while he shed his blood and died for your sins. And that will never change. No matter what happens on this earth and no matter what you do or what you don't do. So relationship-wise, that will never change. But there can be a fracture in our fellowship with God. And what separates, brothers and sisters? Sin separates. We see friends separate, we see family separate, work relationships separate, 
And it's because of this sin that we have. The things that we do that are not correct. In Matthew chapter 6, he talks in the prayer about forgive us as we forgive our debtors. That debtor means a failure of duty. I think Luke describes it as sin when he recounts the prayer there. But it tells us in verses 14 and 15 that we can separate from God on a fellowship level. See, God's never gone anywhere. He's sinless, spotless, without blemish. But through our sin, we can separate from God in a fellowship way because sin separates. Nathan went to David and said, there was this poor man who had a little ewe lamb. And there was this rich man who had large flocks. And this man had the audacity to take the only little lamb the poor man had and to serve it for dinner, for his dinner party that night. This was the message of the pastor to the parishioner that sin separates. Sin separates. Repentance, my friends, on the other hand, brings reconciliation. Sin brings death, but reconciliation brings life. Sin brings hurt, but reconciliation brings healing. Sin destroys, but reconciliation brings deliverance. And guess what? God, in this situation, God initiated the repentance. See, David is hiding from God. God is the one pursuing David. Let me just say this. God will not forgive the person you are pretending to be. Let me say that again. God will not forgive the person that you are pretending to be. And I do that a lot. I pretend to be someone else. I always hated people who made it a point to tell me they're vegan. <laughs> people make it a point to tell me they don't have a TV in their house. I mean, it didn't come naturally in the situation. They got a point to tell me. You know, and I do the same thing. I can't be critical, highly critical of other people, but I can pretend to be somebody else. But the question still remains the same. How can God forgive me? And I need an answer to this question. You know why? You need an answer to this question. You know why? Because you will sin again and again and again and again. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none perfect. There is none good. There is none righteous. No, not one. Not you either. Right? So what do we do when we sin? We do what David does. He fell on his knees and prayed for forgiveness. It wasn't overly long. It wasn't overly dramatic. But he repented and he said, against God have I sinned. And Nathan responds, God has forgiven you. It's so full of meaning to us. But to receive forgiveness, we need to repent. So let me make three points before we end this morning. What is repentance? What is repentance? Verse 13, David to Nathan. 
I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thy shall not die. Sometimes repentance has a negative connotation. When I'm talking about repentance, there might be some white knuckles out there grabbing your Bibles or your books. And we see the guy, the crazy guy in the corner that says repent for, you know, the end is near, all that stuff. But repentance, we shouldn't look repentance as something that we dread. Or shouldn't look at repentance as something that is a negative. Repentance is actually good news. It's an invitation. That's what repentance is. It's an invitation to fellowship with God. Repentance is not because God hates you. Repentance is there because God loves you. God would not tell you to repent if he did not love you. This word, this one word repentance can change everything in your life. It's not a word we use often, but it's a word we should use often. The word repentance, metanoia, means a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction. Simple illustration. We used uh, GPS on my phone, our phones, to get here today. And sometimes I would drive down the road and uh, it would speak to me and say, make a U-turn. Basically, turn around, dummy. You're going the wrong way. My GPS was telling me to repent. That's what it was telling me to do. Because repentance is a change of direction. It's a change of direction 180 degrees. Here is Satan and here is God. There is death, there is life, there is separation, there is reconciliation, there is sin, there is grace and mercy. And so he's telling you, don't go this direction, turn 180 degrees and go this direction. You know, the Bible says that there is the broad way that leadeth to destruction. So if you are walking in one direction and there's a crowd of people around you walking in the same direction, that might be a clue that you're walking the wrong way. Because narrow is the way, my friends, and few people that find it that leads to life. So we need to do about face. God leadeth unto life. You turn 180 degrees. How often do I need to repent, brothers and sisters? As often as I need to. And I need to turn, turn away and go the opposite direction. The Christian life is all about repentance. It's not lip service. It's a lifestyle. Repentance in the Christian life, repentance in the primitive Baptist church is a lifestyle. Seems like a crazy thing, scary thing. Well, Brother Chris, you know, I was born into the church. I was born a prim Baptist. My, my pregnant mother was sitting in the pew there. I was baptized at 12. I heard the sermon on grace, and now I just want to be rocked in the cradle of grace for the rest of my life and just sort of fade away. <laughs> That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is full of hills and valleys and turmoil and turning and turning and turning and repentance because it's a lifestyle. Peter asked Jesus in Matthew 18, how many times do I forgive my brother? Seven times? Jesus said, how about 70 times seven? 
what he was telling Peter is basically is telling Peter, be like me. Try to be like me because I, as Jesus, have an inexhaustible supply of grace. That's the reason I can keep going to Jesus and repenting because where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And you will never run out of the grace of God. That's the reason I can repent and repent and repent if I need to. Turn from your sin and put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. That is what repentance is. That's number one. What's number two? What is repentance not? What is repentance not? You know that you can profess a faith you don't possess? What if Brother Mike got up here and said he was a seven-foot basketball player that played in the NBA? I don't know, Brother Mike. Maybe you identify as a seven-foot basketball player in the NBA, and maybe I shouldn't question you. <clears throat> but that's not really reality. See, I would say, as I looked at Brother Mike, if he told me that, I said, there's nothing about you, no evidence that I see, that says you're seven foot tall and that you can dunk a basketball with one hand. Nothing about you. See, faith is evident by our actions. You know, the Bible says for that, faith without works is dead. That's why repentance is incredibly so important. Am I who I think I am or am I deceiving myself? Is my faith in the right direction? Number two, repentance is not sorry because you got caught. First Samuel chapter 15, Saul sort of repented, didn't he? He said, I've sinned. God rejected his repentance, but God accepted David's repentance. What was the difference? Because God can look at the heart. He can look at the heart. We'll get into more of that. Repentance is not denying your sin. See, because the world is redefining sin, what sin is. The world says bad is good and good is bad. I mean, that sounds like a Bible verse. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This month is Pride Month. I don't have to say anything else because of that, right? I don't have to say anything more. My kids, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that off. And number three, number three, repentance is also not punching yourself. Do you see David hitting himself in the face? Do you see him taking a whip and start striking himself in the back? I hate myself, start kicking myself, self-flagellation. We don't see that. See, a lot of people think that's what repentance is. Repentance is not that. It's not that. See, our past is past. When God looks at us, brothers and sisters, in great, he sees not our sin, but he sees his son. As we live this life, he loves us because we are his child. We are his son. He's not looking for you to beat yourself up. He's looking for something else. He's looking for just repentance. Next, repentance is not managing our sin. See, we, we try to compartmentalize our sin. We try to microdose it. 
Remember, repentance is a 180 degree turn. James chapter 1 verse 15, it gives us the progression of sin. It just starts off with just a desire. Starts off with just a look and then it grows. We have to keep that in mind. We have to kill it off or be killed by it. Next, repentance is not blaming others. Notice that King David didn't blame Bathsheba. He said it's Bathsheba's fault. But Adam did. <laughs> Adam said, the woman you gave me, she did. She handed me the fruit and I did eat. And the older people in the room remember Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. You would blame it on somebody else. Repentance is not that. Repentance also is not excusing our sin. A lot of people say, well, that's just the way I am. That's the way my culture, that's the way I was raised. Brothers and sisters, that's not repentance. Repentance is not manipulating God. We all have done this. Lord, if you just get me out of fill the blank, <laughs> then I will fill the blank. See, we've got no leverage with God. We couldn't manipulate him if we wanted to. So don't do that. That is not true repentance. Next, repentance is not worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance of salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. What is the sorrow of the world? What I think it is, is this, is that repentance is not mourning and grieving over getting caught, or it's not getting embarrassed over the situation, you know, mourning and grieving over, this, over that, instead of mourning and grieving over the grief you have caused God. See, that's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And also, if you're hearing the words in your head saying, you're pathetic, because of what you've done, you're a loser. You will never be loved. Just realize that those words are not coming from God. Those words are coming straight from the pit. Those are coming from the devil who is the accuser of the brethren. He wants you to always remember your past. Don't put it. The Lord says, forgetting those things behind. Put your past behind you. Satan is always bringing up your past and telling you, You'll never be good enough for God. You're pathetic. You're a liver. Know that the God loves you and never would tell you those things. And disregard those things. Repentance is also not avoiding the consequences of your sin. David had consequences. You know, someone comes up to you and says, you know, I prayed and God forgave me. So that means you got to forgive me. Maybe not. <laughs> That may be a hard road to hoe. That should happen, but might not happen. You know, drug addicts that repent still have hepatitis, some of them. So there's sometimes there's consequences, and we see that in David's life. But repentance is not avoiding the consequences. Repentance is getting back that relationship of fellowship that you have with God. Number 10, re repentance is not just a confession. I mean, it's a good place to start. That's good, but it's not just lip service. Repentance is confession, conviction, and change. Those three things. If you got confession, if that's all you got, you don't have 
repentance. If you're convicted, but there's no confession, you got no repentance. If you got the first two, but no change afterwards, you still don't have godly repentance. You got to have all three. In David's situation, you saw confession, conviction, and change. Do you know afterwards he washed himself, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, and then what did he do? He went in and worshiped. And about his loss, he says, that child can't come to me, but I'll go to them. That's what he knew. That's what he knew about the grace of God. How wonderful and gracious God is. No matter what your past, no matter how great your sin, God can forgive you. That's the good news this morning. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, my friends, that's shouting ground to me. That I can confess and that the Lord can forgive me. He's promised me that he will forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And that's available to me because the veil is rent and I can boldly approach the throne and ask for grace in time of need. Now, number three and lastly, what does repentance do? What does repentance actually do? Following David's confession and conviction and change, God and David's fellowship is restored. And then David has another child. And this child comes with a promise that David would have a king who would sit on the throne forever. See, David broke his promise. He did turn from God for a time, but God never turned from David. And God never broke his promise to David. And through repentance, David became the great, great, great grandfather of a child that was born in a little town called Bethlehem, the same city as David. And my friends, that's the forgiveness of God. Can God really forgive me? In your mess, God will work a miracle and he will forgive you. Just repent. Oh, oh.